This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. Part of my um, studies have been in uh, looking at the shift in uh, religion in um, mostly the United States, but it also touched in on uh, England as well. And in a recent survey that was conducted by uh, the Pew Research Center, just over 18% of the U.S. population, that's 18%, gladly claimed a spirituality but have chosen to disassociate themselves from any type of faith community. And the reasons are many. It's from economics, social, technological, scientific, intellectual, cultural, multicultural, polycultural, you name it. There are just so many different reasons that are given for it. And in fact, well, the fact of the matter is that in the 21st century, we see the universe differently. To some, religion looks like a, a, an antediluvian, um, looks antediluvian to the flood of discoveries that have happened in the past hundred years or so. It could be that we are confronted with an old idea of religion that is now too small to deal with the scope of how life is now experienced. There's a whole host of scholars out there and then surveys and all of that trying to get a handle on what's going on. But there are others who have said that actually we're probably experiencing a religious reboot that's happening Um, with change being measured in femtoseconds. There seems to be a disillusionment with the prescriptive, immutable certainties promised by 19th century religion. Now, Tori Amos um, is a singer and composer. Um, uh, she is the uh, uh, daughter of a Baptist preacher, and uh, as well as a recording artist. And a lot of her work explores the ambiguities of faith, sometimes with a scathing critique of religion. And in, uh, in a song... Uh, she recorded several years ago um, called God. She sings, Sometime, God, you just don't come through. Sometimes, God, you just don't come through. You need a woman to look after you. <laughs> Sometimes, God, you just don't come through. The message that we hear in this is, is that God is distant, disinterested, disengaged. And you know, it's understandable. If God is really there, if God really cares, why doesn't God fix this mess I'm in? Why doesn't God fix the mess the world is in? And I know it's a simplistic question, but I still think that that's um, sincere. It's a sincere question that people of faith have been wrestling with for ages. How do we cope? with God's silence, especially when things become overwhelming or dire. 
You know, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, uh, Woody Allen. Uh, do you remember Woody Allen? Okay, good, good, okay. That was a dumb question, okay. <clears throat> In one of his films, his, his character reflects, oh, if God would only give me some sign, if he would just speak to me once, you know, two words, one sentence, two words, if he would just cough, <laughs> you know? And in another film, uh, the character confesses that I'm what you call a teleological existential atheist. I believe there's intelligent life in, New Jer- or in uh, the universe with exceptions in certain parts of New Jersey. <clears throat> of course, you know, doubt is not defined. Doubt is, is not confined to today. I mean, it stretches way, way back, way, way back. Clear back to the psalmists and to the prophets. And, and for instance, look at old Habakkuk. He woke up one morning and found himself in a certain part of New Jersey. His prophecy opens with the complaint, Oh Lord, how long, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? How long do I have to to pound on your door before you'll get up and do something? Oh, he still believes in God believes that there's intelligent life in the universe, except in certain places and in certain times, yada, yada, yada. There's a name for this problem, and you may have heard it. It's called theodicy, which is trying to understand the difficult, enigmatic ways of God. And it's a rough-edged theology that creates more questions Uh, than providing satisfying answers. You know, you have to be willing to live in a cloud of ambiguity if you want to tackle the theodicy. And this means, are you ready? Being able to put up with your doubts. You know, silence at times can seem like a loud confirmation to the worst of doubt. Like I said, doubts aren't new. The Bible's full of doubts, um, full of people who push against this provincial notion of God. Just kind of push it and push it. Think of Job or the psalmist, the disciples. Even Paul had times and at times had questions that pushed faith to new realms of meaning. Doubts, my friends, are a part of the faith journey. They do not mean that you've stumbled off the path. In a way, they mean you've found the path. You don't necessarily have to doubt in the existence of God. You can still believe in God, but doubt that God's at home. You know, you can ring the bell till it sounds like the clanging of a thousand cathedrals. But if no one stirs to even turn on a porch light, you begin to wonder. And those are hard times, times of emptiness and silence, like a, <clears throat> like a house when all the children have grown and gone. 
How do you handle it? What do you do? You know, by the time um, Luke's gospel was written, um, people had been waiting for 50 years and were beginning to doubt that Jesus was ever going to come back. They had been expecting Jesus to come, and, and, and it kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed. And it was enough to make them wonder if anything was ever going to happen. You know, if God would just say something, if God would just cough. Mm. And this parable of Jesus, I think, speaks to that. You know, it's about a rather determined woman who is obnoxious and annoying and an out-and-out -out nuisance, which is marvelous. She was a widow. And if you remember, uh, widows were, by and large, by and large, um, those who had very little power and very little financial means. And during those days, um, <laughs> matter of fact, until very recently, a woman was defined by her relationship to a man. Um, and that's still out there. You know, we, we, we sometimes have to remind Melinda's mother <coughs> when she, she says, well, uh, this is Mr. and Mrs. Brett Strobel. And I thought Melinda just took on my last name, not the first one, too, you know? Mm. And as a widow back then, she was just virtually powerless in a patriarchal society. She has a case to present, but she's found a problem finding someone who's going to listen to her, who's going to stand up for her. She needs a judge to take her side. And that, by the way, was a judge's job. They were supposed to make sure that no one took advantage of the poor and the powerless, the widow and the orphan. There's that, 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 that threefold formula about the concern for the widow the orphan, and the sojourner. And that's how the Old Testament defines justice, compassion for the poor. But it doesn't always play out that way. People in positions of authority don't always behave the way they're supposed to. They mock the dignity of their responsibility. This widow is having a hard time finding a just judge who rules with compassion. This judge, this judge is a corrupt scoundrel, a scallywag. He even admits as much. He says, I have no fear of God and I don't res have any respect for anyone. Which means that he doesn't make his decisions based on compassion or justice. He makes them, he makes a ruling based upon what he can get out of it for himself. And this widow has nothing to offer. <coughs> Hence, it, would be in his, it wouldn't be in his interest to rule in her favor or even waste his time listening. So what does the widow do? She makes a holy nuisance of herself. I mean, she follows him to chambers, knocking on the door. Then when he leaves by the back way, she follows him to restaurants and dinner parties. She follows him home and pickets the front of his house. She slips a cow pie through the letterbox and rings the doorbell, you know. <clears throat> and when the judge won't answer, she just starts 
pounding away at the door. Give me justice. Give me justice. And finally, he can't take it anymore. He probably stepped in his mail. (laughs) She has worn him out. And he grants her justice. Then Jesus says, now if that jerk of a judge will finally hear a widow's plea, how much more will a loving God respond to your needs? So don't give up, says Jesus. If the doorbell doesn't work, then knock and keep knocking. And the key here is not to give up, but to keep at it, to make a holy nuisance of yourself. And that's a bit hard. One of the problems that it raises is, what kind of God is this who doesn't listen to prayer? (laughs) You know, I thought God was supposed to be eager. Well, that's Jesus' point. This is one of those how much more parables. And if this scallywag will finally give in, how much more will God be eager and ready to listen? God is not supposed to be compared to the judge. God's just the opposite. One who cares deeply. And I think there's another message here. And I think, are you ready? I think Jesus is telling us to be a bit pushy ourselves. I know that sounds a little bit odd to our Protestant ears. I mean, so often we treat God as though the Almighty were fine-boned China, afraid that if we shared with God what we're really going through, God might break Mm. or fly off the handle in a a cosmic tinter tantrum. We tell ourselves, don't share your anger. Don't share your frustration. Don't share your pain with God. Only your Pollyanna happy thoughts and possibly ever so meekly your grief. Does does being faithful mean that you have to be a wimp? Does it mean that you can't be honest with God about what you're going through? You know, you don't get that message from the Bible. In fact, there are times that the faithful get downright audacious. That's your word for the week, audacious. And the word is called chutzpah. Chutzpah, that's it. Take Moses, for instance. On several occasions, he calls God into account. And these are some of the most beautiful passages in Scripture. He will ask, didn't you say... Didn't you make the promise? Remember, you're the one who said. Mm. Madeline Engel um, tells a story about uh, the 1960s. It was during the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. And every night she would take her son and they would say their prayers before he went to sleep. And he was about four or five. And he had no comprehension of the political situation. All he knew was that the adult world was tense. And so she, she said that he had said, you know, God bless mommy, God bless daddy. And then he closed his prayer with this. 
He says, and God, don't forget to be God. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? You know, <clears throat> and, I, and I hope that doesn't sound impertinent, but I think it sounds like old Habakkuk on the watchtower telling God to wake up and get on with the business of being God. That's chutzpah. Chutzpah is faith with a little backbone. And so, now we may not be as bold <laughs> as Habakkuk, but um, we have to admit that there are times that we share the prophet's sentiment. Oh, Lord, how long is this going to go on? How long will we have to live in fear and worry? You know, I don't think it's a sin to pray that. I think it's honesty. You know, the Psalms were filled with prayers like this. How long, oh God, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear my soul in pain and, and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long? That's Psalm 13. And the Psalms were used in the liturgy of the worship in temple. You mean I can go into the place of holiness, of sacredness, and give God a piece of my mind? Yeah, yeah. I think God would rather have some raw honesty than pious fakery when you pray. You know, sometime, take a look at Genesis. Jacob wrestled with God at Jabbok. And then he was blessed when he struggled with God. It's all right to struggle with God, to share your frustrations and anger. It's in the Bible, and because it's there, especially in the prayers and liturgy of the Psalms, it can happen in the context of worship and prayer. We can share everything, everything with God. We can be a little bit obnoxious in prayer. What about reverence? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still think God would prefer honesty over that. I think, I think of uh, George MacDonald. Um, he once said, uh, he said, the real danger is not so much in praying to God for the wrong things, but failing to pray altogether. That's why faith is risky. Especially during those times that we wonder if God is really home, if God hasn't left us to deal with the heartache and the pain and the mess all on our own. And in those times, I think we have a choice. Will we knock on heaven's door, then turn away? Or will we knock and keep pounding? In other words, will we become like that pesky widow and keep hammering away with a little backbone in our faith? It's a tough choice. But I think Jesus tells us it's the wiser choice. 
You see, the issue in Habakkuk and in this parable is not if God will eventually answer the door. God will. God, God will answer. The issue is when God does, will there still be anybody knocking? You know, if religion is experiencing a reboot, that's fine. It's done it many times before. And it may be a good thing to clear out centuries of ram that's clogging it. But I don't think it's the end of the church. I still think we have something to offer. I think we have something to offer that's relevant, that's important, and that's very, very vital. We have been dealing with rough-edged theology for a really long time. We know what it's like to, to live in those clouds of ambiguity. And we know the virtue of being real and honest and with God, of having faith with a little backbone, of hanging on when things get a bit wild and out of control. You know, we can even say a few things about anguish and silence. We have traditions, we have centuries of wisdom under our belt. And I think we can share that. So how do you cope with God's silence? I'm not sure. But I do remember a story. Last week somebody brought this to mind. About a guy named Elijah. His life was coming apart at the seams, and there are some really powerful people who would have loved to see him hanging at the end of a gibbet with all the frenzied turmoil in the hurricanes and the earthquakes and the fires going on around him. Afterwards, there in the silence, it was in the silence that he heard God's voice. And you know something? I think you will too.